1: This is the Low Level Hell Podcast, episode 18. I got back, on the clear to going low level.
0: Welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast program that explores the world of rotary and fixed-wing combat aviation through the exciting stories of the men and women
1: who experienced it firsthand. Now, here's your host, U.S. Army Helicopter Pilot, Brian Harris. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Episode 18. Super excited about this guest. Uh, Very timely. Uh, appreciate our friends over at the Extended Podcast for introducing me to our guest today. And uh, this is perfect timing, honestly, because we have just celebrated here the 39th anniversary of the Falklands War. And our guest was a member of the British Task Force sent down to the Falklands back in the 80s. So uh, super great story. I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. I do want to take an opportunity to say thank you to everyone who listens to the show, who leaves a rating and a comment. Those things, again, very much help the show. And if you can take the time while you're listening to the episode, just scroll on down there, hit that uh, five stars, I'll even accept four, and uh, leave us some comments, tell us how you think we're doing. Of course, you can head on over to our website, www.thelowlevelhellpodcast.com. There we've got links to all of our social media, as well as our Patreon page, if you feel like uh, being generous and supporting the channel financially. Well, without further ado, we'll go ahead and roll into our interview, and I'll talk to you afterwards. Larry Jerome Croft is with us. He is a former Royal Navy aviator. He flew the Sea King, the Lynx, the Wasp, and the Gazelle. He's also the author of a recent book called "The Axonal Aviator." Larry, welcome to the show. Good evening. I uh, just want to thank you first for for coming on, and uh, thank you for your service. And we'll kind of talk a little bit about that. But first, just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and and how you got into aviation.
2: Yeah. Um... Well, I live in Somerset in uh, southern England at the moment. I've been here for 40 years because it's primarily where the Fleet Air Arms uh, main naval air stations are, so I based my family here. Um, I grew up in Winchester, which is uh, 100 miles or so to the east, and um, uh, I went to school and hated it. Uh, In England, they call them public schools, but you'd call them private schools. And the Mm. beauty was that the interview to go uh, um, join the Royal Navy save me three days off school for the interview so I did it purely for that reason yeah and I, and I failed it so I did it again I got me another three days off school and I passed the second time so so that meant <laughs> when I was doing my uh, finishing off my uh, uh, school I only had to get a couple of A levels and I didn't have to think about going to university and I could spend as much time as I could um, on motorbikes and chasing girls or maybe it was the other way around uh, but one of the things I did do was I um, got a cadet scholarship to go flying. And basically, in, in the in the UK in those days, we had Army cadet um, uh, corps in the schools, and I was a member. And they offered a flying scholarship, so I applied for it. And we went off and did a big uh, set of tests, which I find out later were the full air crew um, assessment tests, even though I was just doing this for as a cadet. And I passed those, and they offered me... Um, a trip up to Carlisle in um, northern England, where I did 35 hours flying Cherokee 140Cs. I didn't get a licence, because in those days you needed 40 hours. Um, But I got 35 Mm. hours in, and that started my flying career. Um, And then I got my A-levels, which uh, are exams at the end of our schooling, and uh, I had a choice to make, think about doing something or accept the letter the Royal Navy had sent me, saying, would I like to go to Dartmouth? So I did. And... um, Mm off i went it was a it was a great time i i I didn't join as a seaman officer or an executive officer i joined as an engineer uh, for two reasons one that gave me a degree and also my eyesight was rubbish and i wouldn't have been accepted as an executive officer um, which is one of the reasons i never thought i'd be able to fly um uh, with the uh, with the military although i i did keep keep up my private flying i got i got a private pilot's license I actually got it on naval aircraft at a little airfield called Robra near Plymouth, just north of the Naval Engineering College I was at. And uh, they were there to uh, assess people's flying before they went actually training. And so they had spare hours. So I used to go up at weekends and fly these little chipmunk aircraft, little tail draggers. Quite fun to get onto the ground, but wonderful in the air. And I got my license, Mm. and that was great. And then as an air engineer, we allowed... A certain number of engineers to go um, flying to become test pilots eventually and I I applied knowing that I wasn't going to pass but I got more um, hours on the grading. Uh, students got 13 hours I think to be assessed um, before they were allowed to go into the training pipeline and I flew nine hours solo because they knew, they knew me so well by then there really was much point. And then I went for my medical and I failed it and this is sort of why I I call my book The Accidental Aviator, because at that point, not too much surprised, but quite upset, I suppose, in some ways. Uh, they said, right, your, your eyesight's not good enough. So that was it. I was back to doing finishing off my air engineering training, and I was at the Naval Air Station at Portland on the south coast of England then. And a chance encounter with a doctor in the bar, and he said, you know, a lot of pilots fly these days with glasses, especially if they've just spent seven million pounds training you to be a pilot and your eyesight wanders off you stick your glasses off and you go flying why don't you ask uh, to be allowed to go and fly so I thought well, I've got nothing to lose so I wrote a letter to my CO which got forwarded to the admiral and god knows who else and to my utter surprise and delight about three weeks later they came back and said yep yeah. I mean I had a good ground for this I had several hundred hours I'd flown on four or five different types of light aircraft I was a glider pilot I'd been assessed already I passed the aircrew assessment test, so I was a bit of a safe bet. Apart from the fact that I was a bit short-sighted, and that was it. They um, they sent me off to uh, flying training, which was um, great fun. <coughs> Excuse me. We we did um, survival training where we cheated like hell and hid food in, in the New <laughs> Forest and all that sort of stuff. Uh, quick aside, my last job with the Navy, I was in charge of that uh, part of uh, flying training, and. Uh, I knew exactly where all the students were hiding their food because they were still going to the same places I went.
1: <laughs> you knew all the tricks.
2: <laughs> uh, I knew all the tricks. But, um, uh, okay. yeah, and I, I went and flew bulldogs, which uh, um, I don't know if uh, people are aware. It's a, it's, again, it's another little light aircraft, two-seater. We get 75 hours on those to um, learn airmanship and navigation and just basic getting your head together in the sky. And then um, went to train on the Gazelle, which is a, a Anglo-French little um, single-engine twin pilot aircraft, it's a little sports car, incredibly good fun to fly, very twitchy, but incredibly manoeuvrable. And that was our training aircraft, another 75 hours, lots of engine off landings because it was single engine. And then we got our wings. And so I've got some lovely photographs of, of me getting my wings, something I thought I would never, ever get, um, and moved into a proper frontline flying. And that's sort of how I got into it, that's why I call it an accident, because I never really thought it was going to happen.
1: As a, as a kid, though, I mean, was flying something that you just had an interest in or, or not at all? Or, <sighs> you know, at what point did it really become a thing like I want to fly?
2: Do you know, I've asked myself that question so often, and I don't know what the answer is. My, <laughs> my father was a fleet air pilot, but mm-hmm. he was separated from my mother, so I didn't know him that well. But he had a fabulous career as an aviator. Um, so there was all in the back of my mind that I'd like to like to fly, but it right. wasn't one of these things I had to do. It wasn't written in my DNA as such. I, it was one of those things. That thought, well, if I can do it, I'll do it. But if I can't, then I won't be too upset. Of mm. course, looking back in retrospect, um, thank you know, if I get a chance to do it all over again, I would do it like a shot.
1: Yeah. What uh, what what drew you or were you chosen for uh, helicopters? I mean, what brought you into the rotor wing?
2: Well, right. You, I think you need to understand how the the Navy aviation world was in the late 70s. Uh, we didn't have any fixed-wing aircraft left. Uh, our government, bless them, had just got rid of our aircraft carriers. Um, we were just bringing into service the Sea Harrier, um, but the first unit hadn't even formed at that stage. So it wasn't really a case of being selected one way or the other. It was, it was basically rotary wing or nothing. And if I'd been training another year or two later, I'd, I might have got a chance to go fly Harriers, but... <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, frankly, and I hate to say this to the uh, fixed wing brethren, I wouldn't have wanted to do it anyway, uh, partly because we were very limited in, in the Navy at that time. You had a choice when you went fixed wing of flying sea harriers or you could fly sea harriers or if you're really lucky, you could fly sea harriers. There was nothing else to fly. <laughs> and I know several of my compatriots who did end up flying harriers and actually went and joined the Royal Air Force purely so they got a chance to fly something else. So, no, it was all rotary wing in those days. Not so much these days, but it very much was in those days.
1: I see. Okay. So, uh, you're, first, you're out of flight school. You got your wings. Talk to us about that first assignment. Huh.
2: Right. Well, the first thing was moving from a very small glass-bubbled helicopter into uh, what in America is called an H3 Seeking. We just call them Seekings. That's a bus. I mean, it's it's like moving from a tiny little sports car into a double-decker bus. And that was a bit of a culture shock. In fact, I remember sitting in this thing for the first time thinking, what relation has this machine got to the thing I'd learnt to, to fly on? Surprisingly, and I guess not probably not surprisingly, if um, uh, you think about it in retrospect, but actually it wasn't that difficult. And, it, you, you know, you sort of shrank to fit to get into, into the aeroplane after a while. But um, the first few hours in a Seeking, having trained on a Gazelle, was quite an eye-opener. But so yeah, we, we we did the whole conversion course, learnt to fly the aeroplane. Um, the seeking was an anti-submarine machine, well, totally in those days. And the big thing you had to learn was the uh, automatic flight control system on it. It could take you into the hover, day or night, forty feet lower the sonar. You could ping away for your submarines. That it wasn't a bad system, but things in it could go wrong. So you ended up. Most of the time you're training, flying with part of the system disabled or halfway through the process, the instructor would um, flick something out and you'd have to cope with it. Mm. So you actually learned to fly with one eye looking at the wind, a bit, bit like a, an AH-64 pilot who has to fly with one eye looking at his sight and one eye okay. looking where he's going. We okay. had to do the same thing. We had one eye looking at the front and the other one looking 80 degrees to the left to see which circuit breaker the instructor was going to pull next. <laughs> <laughs> not, not a bad way to learn. Uh, so I, I did my, my time learning to fly the Seeking, and then I went front line. And at that time, there were two squadrons I could have gone to. Um, I, I said the fixwing wing was, had gone by them. It hadn't quite gone. Our old carrier, the Ark Royal, was on her last commission. And there was a chance to go to um, uh, 824 Squadron that was operating Seekings off her, or 814 Squadron, which is operating off HMS Hermes, which is a dedicated anti-submarine carrier at that stage. And the reason I opted to Hermes was she had a stateside trip coming up and Ark Royal didn't. Mm. <laughs> so I, I, you know, rather like my accidental way of getting to fly my my frontline squadron choice was based on absolutely nothing to do with aviation and everything to do with the run ashore we were going to get when we got to the States. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's what we did. The, the only thing is we had a very strange training system just at that point. Normally you do what they call advanced flying training, which most people call a type conversion get onto your mm-hmm. new machine, and then you do operational training where you would learn how to use it, or, you know, uh, firing the, the weapons or whatever it might be, operating at sea in our case, um, lifting underslung loads, all, all the things you could do with it at that point. They weren't doing that, and I never, never quite understood why. They stood up a squadron uh, uh, literally a year later to teach it from shore, but I went frontline basically half trained. So my first six months on the squadron was ticking boxes to learn how to land on the deck at night how to lift right. loads, um, all, all the things that you have to do with the airplane operationally, and and that was my first well, three, four to six months on the squadron. Um, and during that time, of course, a few things happened, which you might be interested in.
1: Yeah, well, so what's always interesting to me about naval aviation, and particularly uh, the time period you're talking about, you know, night vision capability was. Was ex- it exists, but it 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 was pretty much non-existent for a lot of units. Um, I mean, you, you guys are completely visual,
2: completely visual. Um, the aeroplane was designed uh, with, a, I say, with a good flight control system. But we would, and I, I've on several occasions have flown a four-hour sortie, which that mm-hmm. was our normal anti-submarine time airborne. Um, IMC the whole time. Yeah. Uh, so from taking off the deck to coming finding the damn ship when we got back, um, not purely on instruments. And that's yeah. flying down to forty foot hovers, lowering the sonar, uh, going back up to two hundred feet, which is our operating height. Um, flying around, going back into the hover again, um, because um, that's what we had to do. It, it was, I mean, I, I mentioned again in this book. We, in those days, it was still we were still at war. People forget that the Cold War was taken really seriously by us at the time, and sure. we would fly and fly and fly. Um, Uh, When we were doing what they call Ripple 3, which is keeping three aircraft on the station 24 hours a day, uh, we Hmm. would probably get three hours sleep between trips. And that was for two to three weeks. And trust me, by the end of three weeks, you are tired.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's – and there's a a physical toll just doing the things that you're talking about. But, you know, flying at night, hovering, low altitude – Yep. Not being able to see what you're doing. How did you guys navigate uh, in relation to the ship? Was it radio navigation? Was it guidance by radar?
2: No. um, The Navy was quite clever in those days. We didn't have um, inertial nav or GPS, obviously, but we had a Doppler radar system in the um, aircraft. And that, that has slanting radar beams going down, measuring Doppler shift. And that gave you left and right. Um, so it, it gave you a, a reasonably good navigation system. If if the sea was flat, it wasn't too good because it, there was no waves to return the signals. Mm-hmm. But it would have to be pretty calm. So And I think it was accurate to about 5 to 10% of our flying time. So if you're out airborne for four hours and you flew for 200 miles, you could be 20 miles out, maybe more at the end. Um which which leads to the greatest lie in the world, of course. Everybody in my day used to say, your check is in the post. But the biggest lie in the world is all aviators know is the ship's position is.
1: <laughs> so is it something pre-coordinated then as well? Like you're taking off, you know the ship is here, but in four hours the ship should be roughly here and then you're just trying to get back to that, that place?
2: Um, There's two answers to that. In, under normal operations, yes. Uh, what the ship would do would... Uh, because they didn't want to give their position away, uh, they, they would pick a phantom a geographical reference, which we both knew, mm-hmm. and they would give their range and bearing to that point, and okay. we could then therefore work out where they were in relation to that. That was great when there was radio going, but of course we, a lot of the exercise was completely radio silent. Sure. Um, so all we could do then, and this goes back to the Second World War when the guys in the were doing the same thing, frankly, which was um, trusting the ship to stick to the course and speed that it yeah. promised it would do while we were airborne um and th- there were occasions like i can talk maybe at some other point about uh when we came back and the ship wasn't where it should have been and it's a big empty old place the atlantic when mum as we used to call the ship wasn't there
1: yeah i can imagine it's oh, terrifying um so how long did you fly the sea king for
2: uh, i flipped for two years um we Initially, we were in HMS Hermes, and then she went out of commission, so we moved to HMS Bulwark, which was a similar ship. Um, she was in Philadelphia when she blew up. In fact, the, the story bit behind that, yeah, the story behind that could have been interesting had she sunk alongside, which she came very close to doing. One of her boilers caught fire, and when metal starts to burn, you, if you put water on it, it just makes the hydrogen and oxygen disassociate, and that becomes fuel. And mm. she was alongside in Philly when this happened, and Luckily, through some very clever damage control, they managed to put it out and we, we left UK. Oh, we left Philly um, uh, and got back to UK. And that's just about when I left the squadron. But um, we had some very interesting times over those two years in those two ships. Uh, major major NATO exercises, you know, you could argue fighting the last, the last war, escorting convoys and um, other ships across the Atlantic. But really, that's what we were there to do. But the other thing I should quickly, quickly mention is that we were the first naval air squadron to have what they call Jezebel, which is a passive sonar system. So not only could we go into the hover and lower sonar into the water and put active sound into the water to you know, find a submarine, we could drop sonar boys. And with mm-hmm. the sonar boys, we could then listen. They'd drop a hydrophone underneath them into the water, and we could listen for submarines. And the mm-hmm. Russians in those days were incredibly noisy. So we could hear them from quite a long way. Um, the only problem with that, it was very effective, and um, as I say, we were trailblazers, we were the first squadron to have it, but for a pilot, it was incredibly boring, mm. because what, what you would do is you'd get up to 6,000 feet or so, you'd chuck a barrier at sonar boys, maybe eight sonar boys, three or four miles apart, and they'd just fly up and down, waiting to pick up a signal, and in a NATO exercise, if the submarine doesn't want to come in in your four hours, that's all you did. Doesn't mean it wasn't tiring and hard work, but it could get numb. Sorry, use the phrase "bum numbingly boring."
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. So, what what was the crew complement in a Sea King in, in a mission like that? I'm assuming you had some sort of sonar smart guy in the back, and you were just carting them around.
2: A Bit more than that, there were two pilots. Um, we always yeah. flew twin, twin pilots, um, primarily because the load one guy would have found it uh, ridiculous, and yeah. also some of the emergencies, some of the single engine work, having two guys we needed two guys up the front. We had in the Navy, Royal Navy, called an observer, um, I think you guys call them Rios, uh, a, another officer in the back. And the way we work in the Navy, he could be the senior officer, he could actually be captain of the aircraft. Um, mm. And he, he would be in charge of the war fight in the aeroplane, or if the senior guy was up front, the pilots, then he would be it. Um, w- w- the guy in the back was uh, we used to call him talking ballast. They used to get cross about that. <laughs> yeah, and and then we had the most important guy of all in the back, who was the crewman, who wasn't an officer. He was in other ranks, and he operated the sonar. So he would um, he would lower the sonar into the water and, and listen and do it. And he was he would also operate the passive system. So the reality was, you had three officers flying around to get this probably a leading seaman or petty officer, where he needed to be to detect the person we were trying to find, hmm. which is a slightly weird way of doing business. I never quite understood it, but um, uh, you know, the man who did the serious work was the non-commissioned officer.
1: Right. So we had a, a U.S. Navy uh, pilot on a few episodes ago, and, and he did anti-submarine warfare, but this was uh, late 80s, early 90s, so obviously the technology is a little bit different. But for for you guys during this time period, how much interaction were you having with the fleet and the ship, uh, the, you know, your, your mom, as you called it, um, because you know, he, what he described was, was there was some data linkage and things like that, but you guys didn't have that. So, so was all of the work being done right there in the aircraft and you were just passing information back to the ship.
2: Absolutely. Um, it was even worse than that. Cause a lot of it obviously was highly classified. Sure. So we had to be very careful how we, um, what we said over the radio. And if mm-hmm. you're in radio silence, you wouldn't say a word and, unless you had to. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was all on HF radio, probably HF radio because of the ranges um, or poss- possibly UHF. But um, no, we would go off. The ship would know where we were if they were operating radar and transponders, uh, but maybe not. And mm-hmm. basically, they, I guess they weren't in an anti-submarine world. Silence was, go- was was what they were after. If we weren't reporting anything, then there was nothing to report. But, right. you know, if we got contact or um, uh, something was happening tactically, then we would break radio silence. But again, it would all had to be encrypted. So um, there were certain radio calls we would use um, in, uh, in clear, like, um, for example, if you called a, a submarine contact, you call the, the, the level of classification prob sub or cert sub or something like that, because uh, mm. they had to know that. But, but after that, um, again, everything, we had to refer to tables and report it on encrypted. We, we did have one thing which was very useful, which is called the Dolphin Code. Um, the Dolphin Code was totally unofficial. It was only um, operated by the aircrew. It wasn't part of any official NATO system. And it was called Dolphin because it was invented by another squadron called uh, 820 Squadron that had a, a dolphin as part of their ship's crest. And it allowed you to be incredibly rude to other people without actually being rude. So, for example, if you said Dolphin 101 to another aircraft it translated as yes sir i know you're the senior officer but you really excuse my french sh- screwed that up <laughs> we had loads of these uh, right. and that was our that was our escape way of getting out of uh, jail free card when things were going wrong <laughs> uh
1: so for the seeking if you guys did you know if this was a shooting war um and you did detect a submarine did it have the capability to engage did it carry any sort of weapon system
2: oh yes oh yes um Generally sp- right, The sea, King could, our sea Kings could carry uh, Mark eleven depth charges, which are depth charges that were the same as being dropped in the Second World War, but actually quite effective. They used them in the Falklands to good effect. Mm-hmm. Big bang. And a submariner, when he's trying to attack you, gets a big bang in the water. Is going to be thinking about other things. Right. So we had those. We had um, the Mark 46 torpedo in those days, which is an American weapon, um, homing torpedo with its own sonar. And we could either drop that... Um, uh, from the hover and it would send it out on a bearing towards the submarine we are trying to attack or we could drop it from uh, 200 feet um, and it would go in a circular attack. So we had that. We also had a thing called the Bucket of Instant Sunshine, otherwise known as the the, yeah, the WE-117A, which was the nuclear depth bomb. And oh. this was a, um, I think I can say it now, 20 kiloton um, nuclear uh, depth charge, which we could drop. Um, Yeah, (laughs) Only once Actually it wasn't that effective Um, Water is an an incredible moderator Um, Mm -hmm. Many years later when I was on a staff job I was in charge of the weapon And I actually looked at some of the statistics And trials that were done on it Um, uh, The the one thing it did do Was put an incredible amount of noise in the water If you actually Mm -hmm. drop one of those With a submarine around They wouldn't hear a thing for hours so right. rather than destroy the submarine, if you made the, the the environment for the submarine which is needs passive sonar and hearing to understand what's going on, he wouldn't right. he, he'd be deafened um but we, I don't think it'd ever been used to be quite honest. It was more the fact that we had it than the fact that we would ever use it so so those are our main weapons, but we wouldn't have normally used them because if we were out on a four hour sortie on detection, we would not have the fuel to carry the weapons as well, so what we would oh, do is yeah, we'd call them what they call a pony, and a pony is a helicopter. Could be another seeking. It could be one of the smaller helicopters, one of the frigates or or destroyers that's um, uh, can get airborne with the weapon, and then we direct the we- direct that aircraft to drop the weapon on the target. So, in in reality, it's highly unlikely that the seeking that's done the detection would actually do the attacking. You get another another aircraft airborne to do that.
1: Okay, so you you probably have another aircraft on standby that that would yeah. come out and react exactly. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, All right, so you finished your tour flying the Sea Kings. What happened next?
2: Oh, well, I was very lucky. They um, let me go and fly the Lynx, which I still believe is the best small ship's helicopter in the world. There's two things about the Lynx. Uh, The the Navy started off, the Royal Navy started off in the late 50s, early 60s, looking at small ship's helicopters for getting weapons uh, the, the ones we just talked about out onto the target because sonar ranges were getting so long that mm. they, the ship couldn't fire any weapons to get that far. Mm. So they, we brought in the little helicopter called the Wasp, which was a single-engine um, turbine, single turbine, and that that did the job. It had an endurance of about twelve minutes when it was carrying weapons; it was very limited. Mm. Um, the, the second generation replacement was the Lynx, which was a, a, a British design, Westland's design, and it, it took the whole the whole concept a, a mile further. It was twin-engined, it had a, um, a solid titanium rotor head, so none of these flappy hinges stuff. Um, the metal actually bent, so the flapping and dragging hinges, is titanium, and it actually bent, uh, twisted, rather than actually having a hinge. Uh, and what that did gave you incredible manoeuvrability. It also gave the ability, when you're on deck on a ship, to put in 50% of your horsepower into negative pitch. So you mm-hmm. could actually sit on the deck with 50% torque operating downwards. And if you're trying to get onto the deck of a ship and stay there, which is just as important, you know, th- this made you stick like a, a limpet. It had very, very strong undercarriage. It had, um, I mean, really strong undercarriage. You hurt your back and it wouldn't do it, it thump down and it wouldn't do the aircraft any damage at all. Mm-hmm. You could, the, the rear wheels were towed out at 60 degrees and the nose wheel was on a hydraulic ram, which could cast her through 90 degrees, and below the aircraft is a hydraulic harpoon, which could fire down into the deck and grab a grid on the deck. So you could land on, press a button on the collective, green light would come on, and you would know that you are now connected to the deck immediately, not waiting for people to run in and put lashings on or anything like that. So you had an aeroplane with good horsepower, had good power margins, incredible maneuverability, very strong undercarriage, and the ability to get onto the deck really fast and when it was on there stay there and you know those are the things you want when you're landing on a three and a half thousand ton frigate in the middle of the atlantic
1: so we got to talk about this harpoon so explain how this how this works because i've heard of the lowering of a line and then pulling it back up to the aircraft and hooking it up and then being towed in but you're you're talking about firing something no
2: none of that Uh, the (laughs) the canadians said i think they call it the bear trap system yeah no we didn't do that and we still don't um the Lynx has been replaced by an aeroplane called the Wildcat, which is uh, obviously was a, an American um, Second World War fighter. Uh, but uh, it's actually it's uh, we wanted to call a Mark Eleven Lynx because it's still got the same system. And basically, what you have under the centre of the aircraft is a hydraulic ram with a claw on it. And on the deck of the of the ship, you have probably I think about six to eight foot diameter circle, made of stainless steel, looks like a honeycomb. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you press <clears throat> assuming you're good enough to land over the top of the damn thing which can be tricky on occasions as soon as you're over the top of it and you press the button the hi- the ha- harpoon it doesn't fire but it goes down very quickly into the grid okay. and it's designed so it'll fit will if you are know, it's slightly your center it'll go into one of the holes and grab mm. it hmm. and that's it the moment it's grabbed you're not going anywhere
1: and and what kind of range like how high do you have to be above this to to make that work
2: you have to be on the deck. You, oh, I see. You've you got to land first. Although okay, I did on so, one, it's just I,
1: anchoring yeah. you in place once you've touched down.
2: Yeah. Although gotcha. one of the things you must remember is if you've got the got it connected when you're about to take off, you must remember to disconnect it before you take yeah. off. <laughs> Otherwise, you try and lift a three and a half thousand ton frigate out of the water, and it won't work.
1: Yeah, it's not that good of an aircraft. Okay. Not that I'm. Yeah, I've, I'm just I've picturing in my head as you were describing <laughs> it initially. I was just picturing this sort of arm that extends out and grabs and and helps you get pulled in but you're saying it, it's just an anchor okay no, no that's still I, interesting
2: yeah. yeah i think that i've pers- i've never flown a bear trap system i know guys have been on exchange who've used them and they say they're okay but we've always we, the u.s navy and a lot of the other navies have they approach the ship over the stern hmm. so what they do is they come up from the ship from behind they fly up and land. And I can understand under those circumstances why it works. The Royal Navy's never done that. They've always come up from one side. And hmm. I think it's a... Personally, I think it's a better system because when you come alongside the flight deck, if you cock it up, you haven't got a ship in the way if you want to overshoot. That's yeah. a good start. And then when you get alongside, you can see the ship and you can see how it's moving. Yeah, You only have to move sideways and down to land. And actually, that's not very difficult especially if your flight deck officer who's judging the, the movement of the ship through his feet as well is, is clued up. So you're sat there to one side and you can pick your moment. And this is the beauty about the Lynx again. It's, its flying controls are so powerful that you know within a few seconds, they're saying, right, we're going for it. You move across the deck and down, straight on the deck, engage the harpoon, go into negative pitch, you're not going anywhere. And to my knowledge, there's never been an accident in all the God knows how many flying hours the Royal Navy operated doing this, of, of aircraft, hitting the hangar, missing the deck, um, not getting it right. its It works extremely well.
1: Yeah, that's a good point that I've never really thought about, but I think that's how the Harriers land or landed um, mm-hmm. on the ship as they pull yeah. alongside. And it yeah. makes sense because if you think about it, even flying in formation, one of the hardest formations to fly is a straight trail because you, you don't have that perspective of the aircraft that's in front of you of judging distance. Um, yeah. you, you, you can't pick up minute changes in distance uh, when you're directly behind something. And so, yeah, when you're approaching a ship and you suddenly have to do a go around, I mean, it's not just the the hangar, but it's all the antennas and just yep. know, stuff that hang off the ships. But you're saying come alongside, you can judge your, your closure rate much, much better. Um, I guess the more challenging part at that point is just is just that slide, you know, just sliding it over, which which isn't hard, but. Um, that's probably the hardest part, I guess.
2: Well, it is, but of course, if it's all going horribly wrong, you can keep sliding to one side and go off the other side. And again, there's nothing, whichever direction you're traveling when you do it this way, there's no ship in the way. Yeah. Um, if you come in over the stern and you don't stop fast enough, you're in the hangar, but unfortunately you're still airborne, (laughs) which is not the way to do it.
1: Yeah. I'm pretty sure you're supposed to fold the blades before you go into the hangar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, well, cool. Well, tell us a little bit more about flying the links and, and what, what that assignment was like.
2: Right. Um, It was early days. The aeroplane was quite new. Uh, So we'd just finished what they call the IF2, the Intensive Flying Trials Unit. And that's when an aeroplane comes into service and you give it to your first unit. And they don't believe all the lies the manufacturer tells you. Um, They're going to find out for themselves. And and they're going to also see how to operate it and and see, you know, what what are the the best things. So I I was lucky enough to be there just after that had finished. So we were still developing tactics and, and all the rest. And, it was. It had its faults. It did because of the rotor head. It vibrated a bit, and the engines tended to leak oil. But you know, these were minor issues. It was. It was a magic time. The you know you're right. You're right in at the start of a brand new airplane, and it's quite clear it's going to be a game changer. So I converted onto it. a very like the seeking um, conversion. Uh, the fun thing there was that several of the guys on my seeking conversion course, one of them in particular, had been my instructor on seekings when I was converting to Seakings. And now he was one of the students with me on our conversion course, mm-hmm. um, which you know sort of even things out. So it was much less of a student us and them type environment. It was more, we're all grown-up pilots now. We're just learning how to do something new. Um, plus, we also got into an awful lot of trouble on occasions on that course. Uh, <laughs> does, does the U.S. Army, Navy, Air Force, would have a game called Spoof?
1: No, I've never heard of Spoof.
2: Uh, spoof is where you have matchsticks in your hand, three matchsticks, and you all put your hand out and say spoof, and then you, you, you anticipate how many, what the total number is, and okay. and then the, the people who get it right go out until you're down to do, guys, and the last guy buys the beer. Oh. Well, we, <laughs> we came up with a way of cheating at it and I, oh. I, refuse, I refuse to say why, but we had a whale of a time. <laughs> we really did. <laughs> so the Esprit de Corps was fantastic. And then right. um, I got sent to sea, and I got sent to sea an HMS Andromeda, which is a Leander-class frigate. She was first of class in that she'd been converted to have this, um, oh, all sorts of new things on her. She had a uh, anti-aircraft system called Seawolf at the front, which I can talk a bit about if you want, but it was incredibly effective. We had four Exocet missiles. We had some very good radars. We had new torpedo launching systems. We had the links at the back end. Had new sonars, and she was tiny. She was, say, so she was three and a half thousand feet long. Earth, uh, sorry, three um, and a half thousand tons. And the captain called her a pocket battleship, and she was. She was very effective machine, and we were really proud of her. Um, we actually took her right the way from commissioning. Uh, we did trials because she was first of class, uh, firing particularly the the Seawolf anti missile system, doing lots of work with that. We then did a a workup where we uh, uh, flag off the sea training, which is the naval system where where you, you have a six-week period and you're put through the mill. So you need how to do everything from damage control to firing your weapons and all that sort of stuff. And then we um, spent the rest of that year um, down in the Mediterranean doing uh, uh, exercises with other ships. Uh, we came back. When we came back, we were fitted with a... We disembarked. We were fitted with a, a bit of a kit called Orange Crop, which is a... Um, electronic surveillance system which allowed us to listen for enemy radars which nobody had really had up until then and that was a real eye-opener because you could, you could hear, literally hear, because it made a noise when you intercepted it the radars of anything that was around and then you could analyse it and you could pick up the various parameters um, so we had that fitted that, that year, the first year on the ship we were on the ship, we had that fitted and then um, we went out after Christmas to Ortec which stands for the, oh, I can't what the A is, but it's Underwater Test Evaluation Centre in Nassau in the Bahamas, hmm. which is a joint range operated by the US Navy and the UK Navy. And it's, it's, it's a thing called the Tongue of the Ocean, and it's very deep and it's instrumented. And the beautiful thing is you can put a torpedo in and you can track it within a few feet so you can know exactly what your weapon's doing. Hmm. So the ship, the ship went out there there for several months. And um our job was to basically to fly people into the range every day and back and Unfortunately, while they were in the range looking at weapons systems working, we had to go to the beach bar um oh, and then and then fly back at the end of the day <laughs> so So we had three months of great fun, and they didn't operate at the weekend, so most weekends were in Nassau, Freeport, or Fort Lauderdale, which was really hard work as well.
1: Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't think people understand how hard it is to be a pilot. Yeah, but your story tough. is definitely opening their eyes. So.
2: <laughs> Somebody had to do it. We we did, we did some casual, casualty evacuation work, and we we still get current and all our operational stuff. But it, it was sunny, yeah. although the trip across the Atlantic, we hit hit a, a January hurricane in the mid Atlantic, which mm. was my fault apparently because I was. As the pilot of the aircraft, is also the ship's weather forecaster, so I got all the blame for that. <laughs> but un- unfortunately, um, we we're in Baltimore. What a wonderful city that is, with the ship um, on the second of April, and then of course it all went pear shaped because then uh, that's when the Argentinians invaded the Falklands, and mm-hmm. we had to come back and get sorted out for that. So, you know, that was that was the big cut off from operating normally in the ship to what happened after that.
1: Sure. And I want to get into that, but first, uh, I kind of want to cover a few things uh, about the links, but also just uh, career-wise. So when you're on the ship like that, uh, and you may have alluded to it and maybe I missed it, is there an expectation um, for you to to learn other things about the ships, like as a naval officer, um, because I've talked to other guys like in the U.S. Navy, and, and some of them can can kind of learn how to do everything from driving the ship, you know, cause they eventually want to be a ship captain. Is that something that is possible for someone like you at this point that you could one day be a ship captain? And so you've got to learn all these systems or is it, I'm right. always going to be a pilot. So all I do is wiggle sticks.
2: Actually, I'm, I'm in the middle of both of those. the main yeah. in the mainstream there. You're absolutely right. There are two streams. One is what we used to call supplementary list aircrew, which was just people who only joined to fly. Okay. And that's all they did. And they, if they were on the ship, they wouldn't be expected to do, to do anything else than fly the aircraft. Although we all had general ships duties, but they wouldn't special do the specialist stuff. And then you had what they call the generalist guys, the people who are career officers. And yes, in fact, they probably wouldn't go into flying training until they'd got their basics of ship watchkeeping. Um, uh, a watchkeeping ticket on the bridge and all that sort of stuff and then they would specialise and some would become warfare officers in the ship and some would become aviators so okay. Okay. when you're at in the ship, yes um, both, I was neither I was this odd beast, I was an aircraft engineer who was doing some front well quite a lot of front line time to get experience, to go test flying. So (laughs) it it was quite useful in the ship because I wasn't qualified to go on the bridge. So they they couldn't put me on the bridge when the airplane was broken or they wanted me up there because I didn't have a ticket. Um, Mm. uh, And they couldn't ask me to do seamanship type things because I wasn't qualified. I could, but I wasn't technically qualified. So I was this slightly unusual flying engineer of which there may be only in a year, two or three a year, we'd go and do it. So to answer your question, yes, it's the same as you, as you explained in the U.S. Navy. But I was wasn't any of those beasts. I was in a slightly opposition.
1: Okay, well, that's kind of lucky for you then. then.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. No, no middle watches on the on the bridge. You know, midnight to four o'clock in the morning. None of yeah. that rubbish.
1: So for the Lynx, um, essentially the same mission you had before with the Seeking, just just newer technology and newer capabilities.
2: No, 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 Mission totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, we had two roles. One was ASW, anti-submarine, in which case we would be that pony aircraft I mentioned okay. earlier that Seeking would call on. But we had uh, an attack capability, which um, was quite phenomenal. What happened in, I think it was 1965, um, some Egyptian patrol boats, two fast patrol boats, had, had literally le- left the harbour. They were still in, inside the harbour walls and fired two Styx missiles, which are Russian missiles, at a, um, an Israeli frigate called the Ilat and sank it. Yeah. And everybody ran around with their trousers on fire saying, how the hell do we cope with that scenario? Because these missiles are quite deadly, but the ships are very hard to, to, uh, inca- you know, to do something about. Mm. so the the, the link got a, a system called the sea skewer which is a an anti-ship missile and we, we could carry up to four of these and they, their job was to sink ships so we had an anti-ship strike role and basically what happened the aircraft had a radar in the nose and we would go out and find the bad guy we would lock the radar up onto the bad guy and fire the missiles and they would fly down the radar beam uh, which is their homing system and mm smack. It had a range of about nine miles and we, we only needed to go be at 200 feet to fire them. So we were pretty safe at those distances and that height. Um, and although it was only designed technically at fast patrol boats and sort of corvette-side ships, you know, we had four of these and they had a, I don't know, was a three or four hundred pound warhead? So we could take out big ships with these as well. So we suddenly, we, you know, we were quite proud of this, we could go out and sink ships with this, aer- this aeroplane. And no. it prove later during the Falklands and also during the Gulf War to be incredibly effective.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'm just looking at a picture of Lynx now. I think it's firing one of these missiles you're talking about. That's, uh, yeah, it's not small. No, they were um, quite
2: big. They were quite big, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, so you had just one aircraft aboard the frigate or were you, did you have room for two?
2: No, just one. The slightly bigger Type 22 frigates could carry two. But no, we were... Uh, uh, Everybody else in the ship had were watch keepers. We didn't keep watches because there was nobody to keep watches with. Mm. So we would fly as and when. I uh, had seven maintainers. The, the flight team consisted of seven maintainers, a, a senior maintenance uh, rating, and, and six others, and then two aircrew, an observer and a pilot, and that was it. And okay. it, it worked all right. Uh, we, we worked out pretty hard on occasions. And then we, as most aircrew do, we managed to sleep pretty well on occasions as well.
1: Well, sleep's important. Um, oh yes, so you, you've, you've mentioned it, so we'll kind of slide into talking about the Falklands. So you said you were in in Baltimore when when all this kicked off. I mean, just kind of talk through you know what from your perspective, how things went for for that whole situation down south.
2: Well, the whole Falklands thing, right, okay. Um, well, obviously, uh, we we were dead keen to go straight away and go and join off down south. So we'd been away for four months already, and we were a steam frigate, and steam frigates in those days needed lots of TLC. So we were told to come home, so we went home. And it was the most peculiar time, because when we got back to UK, the, the, the main task force had already gone, but they were starting to learn lessons about what was happening down there. And they were going to send a... Um, they were meant to be an augmentation group. But by the time we got there, I think we were more like replacements. Um, so we sort of threw the rule book out the window, and it was to me, it was a it was a really good indication of how good our training was, because uh, we stopped following the rules if we had to. That's not to say we didn't follow them when they made sense, but I'll give you an example. We had a a jamming system fitted in 24 hours. To our links while we were at home, which mm. which was designed to jam an Exocet missile. We were very worried about the Exocet missiles, quite rightly. They're the ones that sank the Sheffield and the Atlantic Conveyor, and um, yeah, but Glow, and that was surefire. But but anyway, we knew they were a problem. But we also knew, or I didn't, but the boffins knew that if you tried to jam an Exocet missile because it had an active radar head, it would home on the jamming signal. So what they did is they, they got a jamming system out of a Canberra bomber. They put it onto a pallet, which was small enough to fit into the back of our cabin and the links, and an aerial, which we put on the port's weapon station, and told us to go off to the uh, weapons range in Wales and see if it worked. And this is all done in three days. And yes. so, yeah, so we went there and we hovered 600 feet to one side off a radar barge, and my ship fired an excess set at it, and we turn the jammer on to make sure that the Exocet would come for us, not the target. Wow. And it worked. And in fact, well, I, I claim to be the only pilot in the world who's deliberately flown an aeroplane and deliberately um, jammed a, a missile to come at him rather than the target. <laughs> I normally fail to mention that it's a sea-skimming missile which can't climb, and we're at 600 feet. That, spo- <laughs> that spoils the story. But You're interestingly, right. <laughs> the, ra- yeah, the range staff refused to do it. They said it was too dangerous, so we ignored them and caught on with it. And interestingly, when we got back to Aberforth, a little airfield there, and I had a little wing over and beat up to say how oh, happy I was that it happened, um, we had a guy in the back who rang number 10 Downing Street and told Maggie Thatcher that immediately that it worked. They were that interested in it. Hmm. Um, so we, we set off with what they call the Bristol Group, which is HMS Bristol and a whole load of other ships, us included, with this jamming system and, and a few other bits and bobs. And off we went and we got down to. We got into the total exclusion zone from rightly on the 25th of May which was quite uh, a good date because that's the name of their, their aircraft carrier, the 25th of May and it mm-hmm. was un- unfortunately the day that the Atlantic conveyor and HMS Coventry was sunk so when we arrived it was a bit of a wake-up call, it really was. you know, mm-hmm. We weren't going down for, as everybody was calling it, an argy-bargy, we were going into a hot war and yeah. our job, because we had this Seawolf missile system in the ship, was to protect the carriers uh, so that there were three ships down there that had the Seawolf system. There was two Type 22 frigates and us, and we took it in turns to always be alongside either Hermes or uh, Invincible, which are the two carriers we had down there. And mm-hmm. if we weren't there, then we were up threat, uh, trying to right. detect and shoot down aircraft coming in towards the, the fleet. Uh, that was the ship's job. The aircraft's job was very unusual. Um, I mentioned earlier we had Orange Crop, which is this... Um, Uh, electronic surveillance system in in the um, cockpit the problem was that we didn't have any airborne early warning if you go to a carrier, modern carrier your your American carriers have all got these Hawkeye uh, aircraft with big radars on them and they can detect things coming in from miles away, we'd got rid of ours when we got rid of the ARC Royal the fixed wing carrier, we had nothing Mm -hmm. so the only way we had of detecting a, a, a raid coming in was to listen out for them using their radars and they they used an aircraft, a French aircraft called the 8 Dar, which had a radar on the nose. And if if you were coming in with a with an Exocet missile under your wing and an Aton Dar to fire it, you had to know, had to have some idea of the targets. So at some point, they had to turn their nose radar on and get a target to lock mm-hmm. to indicate to the Exocet where to go. And that's what we were out there listening for. So we spent hours and hours and hours, six thousand feet way ahead of the. Of the um, uh, the air, the ships listening on this uh orange crop equipment we had for these eight on our radars to warn people there was a raid coming in so the Lynx had an airborne early warning role which it's never really been given the credit for um but it worked and um i know it worked because we were there the last time the Argies fired an exocet
1: hmm. well yeah what was that like
2: interesting <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, basically, there we were, 6,000 feet, um, I don't know, 30 miles ahead of the ships. Behind us were three ships my ship, HMS Avenger, HMS Exeter. And it was very quiet. And I'm, I'm sure most aviators know this how things happen very fast. You know, one minute you're bored stiff, and the next minute all hell breaks loose. And it was like that. We picked up Garve radar on our kit at the same time two of the ships picked it up. So we're all on the radio, on the radio shouting uh, a threat attack and the bearing uh, the attack was coming from. And at that point, Bob, my observer, and I looked at each other, thought, "What the hell do we do now?" Because we knew that the um, our aircraft, which are um, effectively bombers, if you want to call them that, would probably have fighter escort, and we were unarmed. And if the uh, they were A4s, American A4 aircraft, they had. If A4s decided to have a go at us, there was nothing we could do. Right. So we uh, we had this, this really cunning plan, which is, um, you know, a very good military uh, t- technique. It's called run away. <laughs> yeah so that's what we did unfortunately we ran away in the wrong direction uh, clearly the obvious was go back towards the fleet there was no point in going back out to sea and there was a lovely great cumulonimbus cloud just where i thought we could hide in that so the links one of the things about the links it was quite fast you could do 150 knots in it as um, uh, standard if you needed to so i wound the damn thing up to 150 knots straight towards this cloud just hoping to keep out of the way of things and we flew straight into the radar beams of HMS Exeter's Sea Dart. Now, Sea Dart was a, an area missile which was designed to take out aircraft from a long distance. Mm. And all I can remember is Bob, Bob, my observer, shouting at me, Excuse my French listeners, shit, they're firing at us. And mm. because on the orange crop, we heard this noise of a right. continuous radar beam. And mm-hmm. I actually rolled the aircraft to the left and looked to the left and saw two missiles, or the trail of two missiles, coming straight towards us. And I, I knew we were dead, that was it. You know, i sort of stick your head between your legs and kiss your ass goodbye moment. And then yeah. I did the only... I don't know why I did it, um, but it seemed the logical thing. Do I shove the stick forward. And we were doing 150 knots at 6,000 feet. And I pulled out at 2,000 feet. And I, I'm damn sure I broke the world helicopter speed record by a large margin. <laughs> um, and then it all went quiet. We'd seen a big ball of flame in the distance and a few other bits and things happening and it, it was eerie it was it was almost as though everybody was in shock and i made one of the most stupid radio calls in my life uh, to the um air warfare controller and said, i could see a ship ahead of us with smoke coming out of it do you want me to go and investigate i don't know why i said that because clearly <laughs> they wanted me but it wasn't it was hms exeter who had fired these missiles and it was the smoke from the missiles from a funnel or something and the radars glinting in the sun so it all calmed down, and then we went to HMS Avenger, which is the other frigate that was there, and there in the water is a great big green stain in the water. And we just caught the sight disappearing of a an A-4, the remains of an A-4 sinking in the, in, in, into the depths. Mm. And what had actually happened was um, two Dars had ca- come in with only one missile. It's the last one they had. So they were giving each other mutual support. Four A-4s had come in with them as escort. The 8 Dars had fired their remaining exoset, and um, turned away and gone home because they're fire and forget missiles. The A fours had come in. They'd seen ships ahead of them. Unfortunately, the two Sea Darts that we saw shot at thought were shot at us, who actually shot at them, and took out two of them. And the other mm. two came, came across HMS Avenger bombed her missed, and and went off home for T and quite a lot of medals. um The problem with the Exocet was that it. Um, it, had, it hadn't locked on to Avenger. It hadn't locked onto to HSX or the next ship to the north. It had locked onto our ship, HMS Andromeda. And they know it had locked on because they had their own electronic surveillance equipment in the ship and they could hear it and, and detect it. So they knew it was coming straight for them and it had them locked on. And they'd done all the right things, firing chaff and all the rest, but it hadn't, hadn't worked. Now, we had Seawolf and Seawolf, this anti-aircraft missile system, could take out a sea-skimming missile and hmm. nobody had managed to do it yet so on the ship they were half of them were well, most of them were terrified and told to hit the deck and the other half uh, certainly the weapons officer and some of the warfare officers wanted to see if seawolf would actually work <laughs> they never got the chance it ran out of fuel about a mile before it got into engagement range of the seawolf oh, wow. so we got yeah well we got back to the ship having sort of been a little bit con- uh, concerned over the last few half an hour or so and my senior maintenance rate when I landed on he came out and gave me a roll of toilet paper which I thought was very appropriate and yeah we we got no sympathy from the ship at all because they had been lying on the deck with their fingers in their ears thinking they were about to die it it was one of of those days where um, you go to bed that evening and you think bloody hell I don't have any more like that
1: yeah and at the time I mean you don't you don't know that that's their last Exocet
2: oh no 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 we knew nothing no Um, we just thought that was going to be another day yeah Um, yeah it was uh how can I put it? Yeah, it was it was just mildly terrifying. In fact that evening uh we, we had um we'd actually said that uh we, we didn't drink. You know, we were at war, we weren't gonna drink, but we knew the Argentinians never attacked at night. Um so Bob and I decided we were gonna have a whiskey each, just what the hell of it. And I yeah. just had a whiskey and the action station alarm went off. <laughs> which never went off at night. It was pitch black <laughs> outside. But we'd actually said if they say scramble the links that was a word that meant no paperwork no rules get the damn thing off the deck as fast as you can yeah. so i ran down the side of the uh, on the waist of the ship they fired the chaff rockets above my head i thought i'd died at that point because i make a lot of noise i tripped over one of the lashings of the aircraft got into it started both engines at the same time because we'd set it would left it in a, a main drive uh, way so we could do that let the rotor break off and then couldn't work out why the air the ground crew were pointing at the number two engine, the, the starboard engine. Apparently the flames out of it were enormous because I would I knew it was a bit of a pig to start, so I'd moved the engine lever a little bit forward than normal. And I wound it up to 950 degrees centigrade, which if a helicopter pilot hears that number, he's, he's thinking that's yeah. too hot. Um, anyway, I, I pulled it back a bit and we got the rotors going and I said to Bob, I think I burnt out a number two engine. He said, well, is it working? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll shove into negative pitch, which you could do. And 50% talk, all the numbers look right. He said, let's get off the deck. So we got off the deck. Uh, we thought it might be a, a condition. We had to use the jamming system I mentioned earlier. Uh, it mm-hmm. turned out to be a false alarm. In fact, we got to 200 feet and then did our straps up because we hadn't even strapped in. And when we got back on board, the uh, the warfare officer turned and said, that was three minutes. And I said, what was three minutes? He said, from the action station alarm going off, which is when I was drinking whiskey in the wardroom, to getting leaving the deck was three minutes or slightly under three minutes. So I claimed two world records that day. I had the world helicopter speed record and the world helicopter getting off the deck in a panic record.
1: Yeah, well, having missiles shot at you earlier is definitely a motivator. It concentrates the mind just a bit. Yeah, yeah. And none of that would have happened if you hadn't had had any whiskey either. You know, like that's the way (laughs) it is. Something something bad happens because you go ahead and take some liberties.
2: Yeah, that's the one drink I had in the whole period we were down there. Uh, while the war was going on, and that's the one day it happened. But just just as an aside, um, I don't know whether you're, any of your um, listeners are in Argentina, um, but there is a massive, not massive, but there's a large number of Argentinian people, including those two A4 pilots who survived, who claim they hit HMS Invincible, the car- one of our carriers, and Sanka. Hmm. And... I've been on several well quite a few forums I've helped some of the Argentinian historians out with this there's not a chance they were, Invincible was 30, 35 miles away but these pilots came back and said they attacked Invincible and are still believed to this day all I would say to anybody from Argentina is that I was at 6,000 feet watching it all happen and trust me HMS, HMS Invincible was nowhere near the action but they yeah. won't believe you but you know that's that's the fog of war Um yeah. And people will believe what they want to believe, but it never happened.
1: Yeah. So, what was the rest of the the deployment like down there after that?
2: Well, we were there for quite some time afterwards. Um, uh, we carried on with our airborne early warning role. We did an awful lot of going around the fleet, carrying stuff around, uh, as you do. Um, on several, on two occasions, the, um, the British Special Forces teams came down, and needed to get into the island. So, what they would do is they'd fly down in a Her- Hercules, um, jump out with load of stores, then we'd go and get airborne and pick up the stores out of the water, pick these guys out of order, the, the ships and all the rest, take them into San Carlos um, and get rid of them so they could go and do whatever it is they were going to do. And that was one of our, our other major roles. And then we were in San Carlos on the 14th of June when uh, there was a signal saying the flag of surrender is flying over Port Stanley. And of course, mm-hmm. That meant nothing to us. We thought, well, just because Stanley has, uh, you know, the garrison has surrendered, doesn't mean that their air force has surrendered. Right. So, you know, for several weeks we stayed on major alert, but it, it was quite clear that um, it was over. And then we had a bit of fun. Um, I don't know if anybody, my listeners know Dartmoor in England, um, but it's a massive great Heath area in on, on, on Cornwall, Devon and Cornwall. And it's it's all Heather and Hills imagine that 100 times bigger there are no trees on Falklands
0: Mm.
2: it's all these rolling hills apart from they call them mountains Mount Longdon and things around Stanley but they're not Mm. Um, and there were no rules so we did a bit of low flying Mm. quite a lot of low flying and the other thing we did was quite a lot of looting looting (laughs) looting is great fun anybody who's been operational in a military environment knows what fun it is to steal things <laughs> um, yeah, of course you do. We went to Pebble, Pebble Island, which is the only other. Air, there were two airfields on the Falklands. One was at Stanley, the main town, and the other was a mm. little uh, grass airfield called Pebble Island. And the Argies had these things called Precaras They were ground attack, air, fixing aircraft, twin prop. Mm. And you could always tell where the Argies were because there was a crater with a prakara in it. Um, but Pebble Island, yeah, yeah. Pebble Island. They were, the, the Special Air Service had gone in during the war and taken the place out. They'd, they'd put explosives on all the aircraft, blown them up and hmm. basically nullified the purpose of the airfield anyway we went out there one day having been whizzing around low level having some fun decided to land on talk to the locals but also see if there were any good goodies to be had so we went to the <laughs> airfield landed on the runway uh grass runway and my observer got out bob got out and he went to one of the Bracaras where there were a couple of clearly um army chaps working on it and the conversation went along the lines um you chaps looting and they said no, sir, no. He said, well, I am. Any of these aircraft got any bits and bobs we can nick out of them as souvenirs? And they said, well, no, sir. And actually, what you should realise is we're Royal Engineers, all these aircraft are booby-trapped, and your helicopter's just landed in a minefield. (laughs) Yeah, so I, I fact, I'm fat Happy knew nothing, nothing of this. I was just sat there burning and turning still, to be honest, and the rotor's still going. Um, but Bob wouldn't come back to the aircraft. I don't know why. Um, he started making <laughs> weird hand signals at me. I eventually, I got the message, and I lifted off, and I moved around and landed, and he explained. And we thought it was quite funny at the time. I think maybe, in you know, by modern standards, we, we should have been a bit worried. But, you know, having been through the war, that just seemed a bit of a laugh. Um, well,
1: I was explaining this to somebody the other day, you know, when you get shot at or something, if you get away with it, it's funny, you know, it, it's, it's a, you have a laugh about whatever the situation is, it's, yeah. it's when you actually get shot up or something bad happens is, is when it's no longer funny.
2: Yeah, but by that stage, you don't care anyway. Yeah. Um, right. I mean, we, we had a, we had a similar thing. Um, when we went into Stanley, we were the first warship to go into the Port Stanley after the surrender. We led uh, Canberra, which is a, uh, uh, cruise ship, we had mm-hmm. down there uh, to pick up Prince Prisoners of War, and we had to go through a um, minefield or a declared minefield. Doesn't mean to say there were any actually any mines there, um, but we had to go through first to lead as a frigate to lead this commercial ship through. Um, and we we're all stood on the flight deck, and we we're meant to be standing there. We all, we all had weapons, we all had rifles, so if we went flying, we could take pot shots at any attacking aircraft. So we're all standing there with these <laughs> rifles in our hands. Um, and we're meant to be looking out for mines because we saw them we should shoot them because they'll sink but we decided it would be much more fun to have a, the last time we'd have a photograph of us all you know, in action, proper action rig with live weapons because the war was over and all the rest so I've got this wonderful photograph, of the whole flight next to the aircraft, staring at a camera when they should have been staring over the side for the mines <laughs> and, and I think when you've been through something like that, you know, when the pressure comes off, you, you, you do react and, and, and you know things that would, would seem quite serious to people who hadn't been there, became quite trivial, frankly.
0: Sure.
2: And then we stayed We stayed down there for another two months because we were the last to arrive, effectively. We were the last to leave. Um, eventually, we were relieved by other ships, and we went home. And that, that was a very strange um, period. We, we had a massive crossing-the-line ceremony. Do you know what that means, crossing the line?
1: Mm-mm.
2: Well, if you cross the equator, um, King Neptune, oh, ne- okay. ne- needs to be told... I and, mean, of course, we'd gone down in a bit of a hurry and hadn't stopped at the line to say hello to King Neptune. So he was very angry and he came on board. We had a <laughs> massive party on board. Um, uh, that was one good thing. And we got back to Plymouth, uh, which is our hometown, the last three ships back. There was us, Avenger, and Penelope with the three ships to come back. And um, Plymouth is a mass grape dockyard, and it's called Plymouth Ho at the end. And they'd, they were planning a Festival of the Sea because it's a very maritime uh, uh, city. And they made us coming back as the sort of centerpiece of the whole day. And they insisted, uh, unfortunately, the Navy insisted that we got off the ships and flew back to Portland. I'd have much rather come alongside with the ship because, you know, we were part of the ship, but we were told to do as we were told. So three aircraft, we got airborne from the three ships as we came into the harbor. And then you fly around a narrow bit up to where the naval dockyard is. And honestly, you know, a Lynx is not a quiet aeroplane or wearing helmets. As we came low level, three aircraft formation passed where all the families were waiting for the ships to come in. I, I could hear them cheering from inside the aircraft. Mm. It was really quite emotional. And then we, we whizzed back to Portland, which is about 100 miles out to the east, and landed at Portland. And um, Commander Air, who was the boss of the air station, you know, three aircraft landed. He came over to shake my hand. And right behind him was my wife and two kids. And I'm afraid to say. I've nasty feeling I pushed him out of the way, because I really wasn't <laughs> interested in seeing him. And right. it, it was, you know, it's. Uh, I'm sure you. I'm sure you know what this is like when you come back from something like that. It's. It's a very, very strange feeling.
1: Yeah, and this all this pomp and circumstance, and you're like, I. I just want to get through this and yeah, get back I, to my life.
2: Yeah, I don't give a toss about that. life. I want to get back to my wife.
1: Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. So that was that, and then then I. Um, I, I was a test pilot for four years after that.
1: Yeah, so tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, that's interesting. I mentioned earlier as an air engineer, as um, our prime reason for allowing to go front line was to become a test pilot. And this was not um, flying new aeroplanes and seeing if the wings fall off if you pull too much G. This is maintenance test flying, which is, although in the in those days of the Lynx, there was an awful lot of development work to be done still. But our, our main job was to, if you want to call it quality control? I think that would be a fair, fair statement. Mm. And... With the Lynx and also the Wasp, which I also converted onto at that stage. and Boy, that was interesting. Um, Small ships' flights, you would have a pilot, an observer, or in the case of Wasp, a pilot and an air crewman, who would fly the only people who would fly that aeroplane all year. So the only only other person who would get their sticky fingers on the aircraft in 12 months was the test pilot, was me. And so I got a feeling for what the average aeroplane was like and what they should be like. And... I, I could, you know, you would find an airplane that was absolutely immaculate. But if you switched out one hydraulic system, was trying to kill you because mm-hmm. the, fault had, the fault had developed, which they just hadn't noticed. On a, on a squadron, when everybody got to fly all the airplanes, you know, faults would get picked up by people because no two people feel the same in an aircraft. But with small ship flights, you know, there were, sometimes there were some seriously dangerous conditions in machines I flew. So I was there to provide that sort of backstop of of common sense, if you want to call it. Um, and I, I, I think we did a bloody good job. The, the other thing with the Lynx, as I said earlier on, it was it was an, um, a new aeroplane in those days, and after the Falklands was over, my chief, my senior maintenance rating, had to go home in a hurry because his wife was ill, and because I was a qualified engineer, I stayed on. I'm probably the only person who's been the senior engineer of a small ship's flight and the pilot because I was qualified to do both jobs. And during that time, we actually had to do some work on the flying controls. We had to chase a hydraulic jack, or sorry, change a hydraulic jack. And I very quickly realised that nobody had thought through half the servicing procedures on this aeroplane. So in the first couple of years, when I was test flying, I rewrote the whole maintenance uh, procedures of the aircraft. So it was, it was very satisfying as an engineer, but also as a pilot, because um, you couldn't have done it without having both skills. Mm-hmm. And then i had to fly the wasp (laughs) Uh,
1: yeah what tell us about the wasp because i was just looking Ah. it up while you were mentioned it and that is a weird looking aircraft it looks like it's nothing but engine cockpit and landing gear yeah
2: a a friend of mine landed on one of the american carriers many years ago and one of the the ground you know the the, the flight deck crew came up and said did you make it yourself sir (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: it it does have a, a homely appearance
2: yeah it was built in the 50s it was designed it was purely designed to carry a weapon, further away from the ship than the ship could fire a weapon and drop it on on the, um, the submarine. <laughs> That's all it had to do. Um, it had a an articulated road ahead, had a, a quite a powerful engine, but a transmission that wasn't that strong. Uh, it had no what most modern helicopter pilots would assume were mandatory uh, flight control help at all. In fact, it, it was easier to fly it with the flight control system, the rudimentary one it had, switched off mm. because. Um, Honestly, it was rubbish. Uh, the engine would produce a 1,000 horsepower. It was limited to 685 because of the transmission. So one of the things you had to do with it was to get make sure the engine was set up properly, was get up very high to um, uh, make sure the full fuel flow was going through the, the engine. And the only way to do that was got high so you wouldn't over the transmission. And we were allowed above 10,000 feet. We were the only helicopter in the British inventory allowed above 10 grand without oxygen. And my record was 14,500 on one particularly stubborn aeroplane. And on one famous occasion, I was up at 12,13,000 feet or whatever. And I remember Harrier coming along and local air traffic saying, "Um, look out for rotary wing traffic above you. And (laughs) you could see the Thinks bubble coming out of this Harrier pilot. There's a helicopter above me. And that was me. Uh, It it could also bite you really, really hard. it had, if you went, you, you know what going auto-rotation into a powered hover is all about, yeah?
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, if you did that with this thing and you didn't get the engine exactly right as you pulled in the lever, it would surge. Hmm. You'd a bit 30 feet with a surging engine and you've only got one. And you've got to decide, if I freeze on the collective, will it clear? Which most of the time it would. But if it didn't, you had to cushion yourself before you hit the ground too hard. And we used we used to write them off doing that. We used to do engine offs in the damn thing, which in a gazelle, the gazelle, the training aircraft used to flutter down like a little butterfly, and at the bottom you'd flare it and land it. There was enough inertia in the rotor head that you could pick it back off the ground and put it back down again. The wasp fell like a house brick, (laughs) and oh seriously, it fell like a brick, and at one hundred and fifty feet. You flared the hell out of it, probably getting the tail rotor within 10 feet of the ground, levelled it, pulled in what energy you had in the rotor systems left, and smacked into the ground. And it was tremendous fun, because this was serious, serious pilot shit. I mean, it, it, it's not like flying a, a Robinson R-22 or something. Again, I, I don't know in the, what you've flown, whether you've ever done the... You must have done engine offs in, in helicopters, I, I assume.
1: Yeah, I mean, w- well, not
2: completely off, but yeah, I go to idle. Oh well, this is this is off. Um, oh wow! Yeah, but you know, if, if if you want piloting, real flying stuff, this is what it was about. So you had an aeroplane that was hard work, um, very rudimentary, incredibly demanding, but incredibly rewarding. And the crazy thing was, one morning I go and fly a wasp, take it up to twelve thousand, fourteen thousand feet, or whatever. Check it all out, make sure they didn't the blades wouldn't fall off and retreating blades stall and all the other things we had to do with it. In the afternoon, i go to get into a Lynx, which was, because um, I flew both at the same time, um, which was totally different. It had its own pratfalls as well, but was a you know, leap of technology further on. And I remember one one occasion, I was coming back to Portland on one engine in a Lynx, because I'd had a, an engine go bang on me. And I just... You know, shut it down. Came back to Portland. Uh, declared an emergency. Came back, and they sent a wasp boat to shepherd me back. And to this day, I can't think of what I should have said over the radio. But why are you, Why are you sending a one single engine helicopter to shepherd me back? I'm I'm still on one engine. Right. Um, but you know, it, it was just the way we thought at the time. But it was great fun to fly both both at the same time. It really was because you you know you, you got a you got these two quantum differences in technology. And yeah. I was I was lucky enough to, as I say, to, you know, to muck around with both of those on, on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, so tell us, I mean, how did you wrap up your career? You, you, you've served how many years?
2: Oh, 30 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, well. 30 year. Yeah, as I said, I was a, as an aircraft engineer. The the ratbags sort of stopped me flying after that. But um, I, I after that I became the air engineer officer of a uh, commando helicopter squadron, eight four six squadron, and we had eight seeking Mark fours. They were the um, they weren't the ASW variant. They were the um, commando troop carriers. So mm-hmm. I spent two years uh, with them, and that, that was a laugh because we spent a lot of time in Norway. Uh, our mm-hmm. primary role in the winter was to defend. Norway from the nasty Russians coming down from the north so we had to do Arctic training we had to operate in 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 the Arctic Um, we for three months every winter would operate in a small um, it's actually a hotel complex near Lillehammer in southern Norway um, where we conducted ourselves to our entire satisfaction and the local population including the local (laughs) nurses home but we won't talk about that Um, and then in the summer we would do operations with the British army on the Rhine We would go to sea. We we would send flights onto the uh, various uh, support ships we had. So that was my job there. But I I, although I flew, I I used to you know grab some stick time with the aircraft. I didn't qualify on the Mark IV. Uh, Having done that, I sort of slowly receded from the aviation world in terms of flying. I went northward, which is the um, Commander in Chief Fleet's headquarters, and I ran the inspection team for the nuclear bomb I spoke about earlier. I, I used to go to I'd to ships and inspect them, and make sure they were capable of carrying. And, and also I used to um, arrange and manage the loading of the actual live, live weapons because we we used to carry live weapons in various ships. And i mm. probably better not say any more about that. Right. Um, <laughs> and then I did some engineering jobs and I ended up on the um, uh, staff of Flag Officer Naval Aviation, who was the senior uh, naval aviator, admiral, obviously. And I, I was in a support job there, again, air engineering. And I used to look out of my window uh, because we were based at Yeovilton, but on the wrong side of the main road that goes through the airfield. And I'd see all the links flying on the other side and and see Harry's and all the rest and think, I'm on the wrong side of this this damn. <laughs> so I, I bailed out. I, I realised I was not going to be first first Sioux Lord, strangely. Um, <laughs> and uh, I still had family th- grown up. I worked in industry for seven years, uh, mainly selling stuff to the MOD, surprisingly. And then at the age of 54, my mother had passed away who lived with us. My kids had gone to university. We bought a yacht and then we sold the house, which if you think about it is exactly the wrong way to do things (laughs) when you need the money from selling the house to buy the boat. But we did that and we went and lived in the Caribbean for several years. And then when we came back, uh, we came back to where we are now in Martock in Somerset and I started writing books and that's what I do apart from playing golf incredibly badly.
1: Oh, that's not a bad way to live. Did you did you fly any all uh, after you retired the civilian flying or anything? Like that?
2: Uh, yeah, I did a bit of microlight flying, um, and a friend of mine, would you believe, has got a wasp. He's bought. Mm. He's he's kept it going. I fly that occasionally with him. But as I keep telling him, if if that was an aeroplane I had at Portland when I was test flying, I'd bring it straight back and would let it fly. But but that's yeah, but that's because. <laughs> That's because what he does, most of the systems in the airplane don't work, don't need to work because it's not a military airplane anymore. He just sure. needs to fly it from A to B. And um, the standards aren't don't, don't have to be that high. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that's that's quite amusing. To get, uh, to get back into one of the, I think it's 35 years since I'd flown a WASP. And mm-hmm. I'd got into this thing and uh, we, we, we went to do an air display at another airfield, an Air Force base. And he said, right, you can fly it back. So I flew it back, no problem, straight and level, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I was a bit worried about hovering it because I thought, well, I haven't hovered an aeroplane for 35 years. I wonder if I can still do it. Anyway, he, he brought it into land, hovered it, said, right, you have control. Do you know, it took me half a nanosecond yeah. and I was showing him where he was doing it wrong. <laughs> it, it was like it was literally like riding a bike. You do not forget. Um, yeah. Yeah. And because he always single engine aer- aeroplane, he always hovers the damn thing too high. Explaining mm-hmm. how you could go much lower and it's much safer, and I did some hovers around the tail and hovers around the nose, mm-hmm. and it was lovely. It was it was it was really satisfying. But do you know, when I was in the military, when I was flying, every time I flew, I flew for a reason. Yeah. I, I don't I don't know what other military pilots find this, but if, when I was flying microlites, when I was flying Terry's watts all this sort of stuff, you for a few hours the novelty of doing it comes back, and that's great fun. And then you think, what am I going to do now? Yeah, yeah you know, especially when
1: you're paying for it.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I can go and do some aerobatics or I can go and fly to, from A to B, but I actually don't want to go to B, but there's nowhere else to go today. So yeah. I, I sort of, I, it's rather like before I flew with the Navy when I had a private pilot's license. I used to go flying because, because I could rather than mm-hmm. because I wanted to. And I think military flying is so much more satisfying because every time you strap yourself into an airplane in the military, you've got a goal. Right. You know, it, it might just be continuous flying, getting an instrument rating back, but it might be going down to range and firing weapons, it might be test flying the airplane to make sure the, the terror rotor doesn't fall off. It doesn't matter. You're doing it for a reason. Whereas yeah. in civilian flying, I never really found a reason to do it. Which is why I don't really that's why I play golf.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I race yeah.
2: I race cars as well, but well, that's another story.
1: Well, it's all cheaper than, than flying just to fly. So but, um, uh, yes. so but yeah, yeah, no, Monday, I agree. I agree completely. I, I got my private license a couple of years ago, and after I got it, I just I didn't do anything with it because it's like, yeah. well, I, I don't have anywhere I need to go, and it's going to cost me $150 to fly for an hour anyway. So,
2: Yeah, I mean, when I win the the, the British lottery and I buy myself a yeah. nice twin squirrel, I'll use that for flying across to the Alps to go skiing in the winter. I'll use it for right. a reason. <laughs> or actually, to be quite honest, I'll, I'll, if I've won that much money, I'll get another pilot to fly me there. But there we are. Right,
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, tell us a little bit about your uh, your writing career.
2: Oh, right. Okay. Um, well, I'll keep it reasonably short, but I, I've always wanted to write. I found in the Navy I was quite good at um, putting pen to paper. And when we were out in the Caribbean sailing, we learned so much about the history of the Caribbean that you don't get to know unless you plod around the islands with a rum in your hand, that mm-hmm. I decided there were some stories there. So I wrote a, a, ser- a trilogy of three books based on... Um, uh, I, I wanted to illustrate the past as well as the current, so I, I, I cheated. I, I used a sort of sci-fi, what's the word, de a machine a cheat. Um, mm. And I sent a, a modern 80-foot yacht back to 1805, so A, you could have the fun of um, modern technology interfacing with an old, you know, 200 years old, but also yeah. illustrating some of the, the things with, when Nelson was out there and things like that. Mm. Um, ended up the third book, um, uh, with the Battle of Trafalgar, with my hero helping out there. So I wrote those. And they always say, write about what you know. So having done those, I thought, like, what the hell do I write about now? And I thought, oh, what write about your own military experience. So I've written 10 novels about the, F- the fleet air arm. Uh, there, there are people like, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably get, you probably won't want to put this in the podcast, but there's certain American um, authors like Clive Cussler and Tom mm. Clancy and co, who actually haven't a clue what they're talking about when it comes to military aviation. Mm. So I wanted to write from a basis of of what it was really like. So I started off with the Falklands, and I wrote a book called Sea Skimmer, which was Sea Skimming Missile was the Exocet. I, I, I made up some stories and fitted those around some of my experience. And then I, I moved on from there. The next one was about operating in the Arctic, which I've done with... Um, the, the Commando Helicopter Force. The next one was about anti-drug smuggling, which I did a little bit of when we were out on the Ortec range with my links. Um, I did some work. I'd, I'd written a book about in the Gulf. In fact, a couple of uh, books about operating in the Gulf, which I got involved in when I was in um, Fleet Commando Quarters. Um, and those those 10 books were basically following the career of a lieutenant until he becomes a Commodore. And, of course, once you become a Commodore, you, and if you were to become an Admiral... Frankly, there's nothing you could do that's very interesting. So I, I stopped the series at that point. Um, <laughs> yeah, as I say, just my, meetings. Yeah, exactly. My uh, I've written a sci-fi novel. It's just something I've always wanted to do. But I, the other one I'm working on now, and I'm working on the sequel to, was my father was a Battle of Britain pilot. He flew Hurricanes with mm. a 213 squadron during the, the Battle of Britain. And I've got his combat reports. And, for example, his first ever combat, which right over the naval air station at Portland, where I used to fly, they intercepted um, a, um, a battle, a fleet of Dornier uh, 88s coming in, mm. and he shot down three. Admittedly, wow. he, he only got one classified as a um, as an actual shootdown, as so a probable on one and an, uh, maybe on the third. This is the first mm. time this guy went into combat. He only had about 30 hours on hurricanes. And on his combat report, open fire range, 50 yards, ceasefire range, 25 yards. Wow. Imagine getting that close. Yeah. Um, and he... shot. He, well, he tells me he shot down loads of aircraft in the Battle of Britain, but um, he was only credited, I think, with four or five. Mm. The last the last time he flew with them, they, it was actually on Battle of Britain Day on the 15th of September, they took on a... The, one squadron of hurricanes took on a whole 80 bombers and scattered them to the fact that not one of the German bombers dropped a bomb on English soil. Mm. So I've, I've used those and put that in, again into a novel. And then after that, he... Um, He flew with 888 Squadron flying... flying, uh, Well, they called them Martlets, but American Navy called them Wildcats. And he flew with 888 Squadron off HMS Formidable um, in the Mediterranean. So I'm halfway through now writing the second novel, again, based on his story, um, culminating in what was called Operation Torch, which is the um, combined American-British invasion of North Africa, where the French Mm. uh, had grounds. So those are my books. And uh, say finally because I'm vain and all aviators and authors are vain, I -hmm. decided to write an autobiography called The Accidental Aviator. And many of the things I've I've spoken about today are in more detail in that book. And I I did actually for two reasons, apart from, you know, um, vanity, was that people forget (laughs) in 1970s, we were at war and the risks we took, and we went hot, of course, in 1982. But we flew in a way, until Afghanistan and the Gulf Wars came around, um, which everybody thinks, you know, well, 1945, that was the end of it. And then until Gulf War One started, nothing happened. Right. Not true. We, we took ridiculous risks because, you know, we really felt threatened. And I, I really wanted to make that point in the book that, um, you know, 60s and 70s, naval aviation, certainly from our point of view, on this side of the pond, you know, we flew hard, really hard. Mm. Um, yeah. We lost people. Um, we took risks. They would not be allowed to fly the way we fly now.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely a, a worthy cause to write something about. Um, I mean, it's the same same concept behind this whole podcast. Is there's so many stories and so many experiences that most people just don't get to hear about. And I think particularly for helicopters, you know, there's not as big of a of a media presence about the things that we've had to do uh you know in your time and in mine and i mean you you know just talking about landing on a ship at night without any sort of night vision i mean that that alone is is terrifying you know on top of all the other things and you know having missiles shot at your ship and all this stuff so uh no i think it's great um vanity aside i think it's i think it's a worthwhile while thing so i I look forward to reading it
2: yeah well i mean just about landing on a ship one of the most lonely places in the world Probably, think, The most lonely place in the world is when you turn finals to land on a, on a small ship in the middle of the Atlantic and you see the green light of the glide path indicator come on. And the only way you're going to continue living is to follow that green light down, find a small ship, which is probably flinging itself all over the ocean because it's rough, <laughs> and, and get onto it because you have no other option.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, you have. You're going to get wet. You know, it's it's not flying with the air force where they have diversions and things like that. There is no diversion. There is just that small. uh, uh, It was quite. This is a way way of summing it up. When they brought the simulator, the Link simulator, down to Portland, um, when they they built a new one with good visuals, and we had to do a simulator check every year. I remember getting into this thing, and you probably know this, when you're flying a simulator, after a while you forget you're in a sim, and you, you, know, you focus on your brain says you're flying, and you, you just concentrate. And I remember doing a night sortie, and turning two miles finals onto a frigate in the simulator, and my buttocks clenching just as hard in the simulator mm. as they mm. did, for real. And yeah, it, it's... <laughs> You know, these Stovies, sorry, we call them Stovies over this side of the pond, fixing pilots who think they're wonderful tail hookers and all the rest. Yeah, (laughs) don't get me wrong, they're good guys, but I'd like to put one of them in a helicopter and get them to land that on the back of a frigate on a black night and then ask them to compare what it's like. And I think they probably find it's very much the same sort of experience.
1: Yeah, it sounds terrifying, and I'm glad I never had to do it. So. <laughs> but uh, do you know,
2: it wasn't terrifying because we were trained to do it.
1: Sure. Yeah. It was. It was. It,
2: it was hard work. It was. Um, you know, when you got back on board, the adrenaline was pumping. I was never scared.
1: Training matters. I mean, it becomes yep. muscle memory, and I mean, I think I think you'd probably agree, though. It's it may not be scary. But it's something that you definitely respect, and when you stop respecting it, you should probably be worried, because that's the what moment, you're going to make them. Yeah,
2: the moment you start getting—I think the word is blasé about it—you're yeah. in trouble. No, you concentrate. Yeah,
1: yeah. absolutely. Well, I want to say thank you so much for spending your time and, and talking to us about this. Um, I've never I've never spoken to anyone who served in the Falklands, so it was fascinating to hear some of that, and and just in general hearing about your career has been it's been great. So I really uh, appreciate it. Well, it was great talking to you. And you. Yeah, cheers. Well, I had a lot of fun talking to our guests. Hope you guys enjoyed that. And uh, very appreciative of him of then linking me up with another person who's going to be the guest of episode 19. I'm looking forward to speaking to him here in a couple of days as I'm recording this. And we are winding up here at the end of the season. I've got a few more guests lined up. And like I said uh, previously, I think we're going to take a hiatus here sometime in the uh, September time frame as I transition up north for a little bit of schooling. Uh, But we'll just take probably a month or two off at most. Again, don't forget to scroll down, hit those ratings, leave a comment. Really appreciate you guys doing that for me. And I'm always looking for guests. So if you've got somebody that you've worked with or served with who maybe has some stories of their time flying helicopters in combat or even jets. We'll, we'll take some jet guys. and we've had one on in the past. Um, but yeah, anyone like that that you might have that uh, is willing to share some stories, we'd love to have them on board. Just uh, send me a note at brian at Podcast.com or questions at com, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Appreciate you guys. Hope you have a great week. Reminder that the comments made by the guests and hosts are their own. Do not represent the Department of Defense or any private businesses. We will talk to you guys again in a couple weeks. Take care.